Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. In Sacramento, California, young Stephen Clark was shot to death in his grandmother's backyard by police officers who thought they saw a gun. The youth had no weapon. E.J. Bradford was shot three times from behind while trying to assist others to safety from a gunman at a shopping mall in Birmingham, Alabama last November. And Antoine Rose, a teen fleeing police, was shot by them in East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, although he too had no weapon. Contrastingly, at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, the Anglo shooter of 11 persons was not shot by police, although he still held his weapon when they arrived. And much of the same for Dylan Roof, just after he killed nine African-American members praying at a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he too had a weapon in his hands. Double standards, systemic racism, lack of police training, what's truly at the heart of the matter and what can be done to better support police while protecting communities of color from some police officers. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. Retired police officer and ATF agent Matthew Horace takes on this situation in his book, The Black and the Blue, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism and Injustice in American Law Enforcement and from a very unique perspective as an African-American man who has also experienced a gun to his head from another police officer. He is our guest on this edition. There are a lot of very good things that police officers do that we never hear about. Right. And, you know, we always know that police officers are around during Christmas to take toys to kids and that kind of stuff. But after Christmas, there's still a bunch of things that, officers do that we don't hear about. I think you wrote or mentioned an officer that was had to pull a kid out of the back of a car that was teetering off a bridge. Sure. Those are the stories, too, that we need to hear about as well. Well, you know, what you learn in the profession very quickly is that the overwhelming majority of things that you do, you're there to help people. And when people call the police, they expect that they're going to get help. Mm-hmm. And Police are a necessary element in our society. And who do we call when we need help? We call the police. Yeah. And I made it very clear in every single uh, way that I could that the overwhelming majority of men and women who carry that gun and wear that badge come to work every day to do a noble job. Yes. And they, they, they live it day in and day out, year in and year out. And they're exposed to people under the worst conditions imaginable day in and day out. And, they, and mostly, mostly, they do an incredible job. Yeah, they they meet they meet people right where they are, no matter where they are, or no matter what condition they're in. And I don't say they; I say we, because I was a part of that. Yeah, for almost thirty years. I have to say they because I'm not. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'll often forget when I'm because I've been retired now for a number of years. But it is it's very much of a situation. It's we. I was there. I was answering those calls. You know, I was in knockdown, dragout fights. Um, I was in shooting incidents and chases and knocking down doors of drug dens and going after violent criminals. So I feel it. I know it. I, I've experienced it, and I know what it's like. Where we go wrong is to ever take the position that we can't be better at what we do. And it seems as though every time there's an incident where our eyes tell us that there's something wrong with this incident, we draw this line, and it becomes us versus them, and then we, be, we take the position that we're under attack, right? We're under attack because Walter Scott was shot in the back. 
We're under attack because Freddie Gray was killed and no one knows how. We're under attack because the gentleman in New York was choked to death. You know, we're under attack and we're not under attack. These incidents are isolated incidents. And if we treat them like isolated incidents, we don't have to feel like we're all a part of the same thing now. Sure. By and large, police officers feel like the world is judging you in Greenwood Village based on something that happened in Anchorage. We just take that position. I I don't think it's a good position to take because people are smart. And when they see what happened to Walter Scott, they know that that's an anomaly and not the rule. Well, the reason why I started with with a lot of the good things that police officers do, one, that's factual because they do. Right. And I know the public many times says when things happen, when shootings occur and the citizen doesn't have another weapon and that kind of thing – and it seems as if the big blue line comes in and says that police officer could have done something wrong and we're not going to say anything. And I think those incidents cover up all the good stuff right. that police officers do. And I keep waiting for an, a, an officer or a group to stand up or stand out or say something about the bad officer who shouldn't have done what he did right? to make their career, you know, well, to you, keep their career intact and positive. Well, you know, you make a great point. So this is one of the things you learn in leading people and being a thought leader, right, and being smart about things. It actually helps the profession when officers um, tell other officers. It helps the profession. But we're brought up in a culture that says, don't dime each other out. I mean, when I was a police officer, the first thing my training officer said was, what happens in this car stays in this car. Right. He said that before he even told me his name, right, because we come up in that culture that says cops don't tell on other cops. Right. And, I, and, and in the book, I talk about an incident where I was attacked by a Philadelphia police canine when I was an NCAA athlete in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And the officer took my name. Not the, the officer who the officer who was handling the dog didn't have any inter- interactions. He yelled an expletive to me and he left me on the street bleeding. The officers who took me to the hospital, they had to take a report and they did. Right. When my parents got the report sometime later from the police department. The report listed me as a suspect, not a victim. And the report also said that um, I had an unknown injury. <laughs> so, so here's a case. Here's a case where officers who didn't even know the officer who was responsible for the bite, right? Right. They refused to tell the truth. Wow. And that's how deep the culture, that's, how, that's one of those cultural nuances. That's how deep it goes, that they couldn't take now, you'd have to think, if they rescued me from the street bleeding, they had to ask me what happened. But they couldn't even write it on a report that it was a result of a, a police canine bite. If they can't do it for a report like that for a police canine bite, a shooting, they're going to make sure that they write the right stuff on, yeah. the, on the report so that they, the officer is protected. Well, the Laquan McDonald shooting was a prime example, and we cite that in the book as you know, um, the officer who fired the, the, the shots that killed Laquan McDonald, and no one else fired. But everyone else's story read the same. And those officers were indicted for, amongst a number of things, lying. Yeah. Right? Because you can't all see the same thing. And we know in policing when we call them critical incidents, when things happen that can cause post-traumatic stress and those sort of things, you get heightened. No one sees the exact same thing, but all the reports read the same way. So this still happens. There's an implicit bias against 
or, or society, maybe against is not the right word. There's an implicit bias regarding African-Americans and other people of color that every black man uh, on the street is packing. Well, I think in, in the book we say we're packing with something we can't change. That's our skin color. Yeah. Right. And implicit. And, and one thing we say, in the, and I say in the book very clearly, is that implicit bias is something we all have. Right. But we have to figure out a way to manage it and keep it in check. The implicit biases that cause what we call in the book the boogeyman effect, right? Every black man is a danger no matter what and how you're approached. It's like me getting in an elevator with a $1,000 suit and $500 shoes and having somebody grab their purse, Yeah, right? And if they really paid attention, if they really looked at you, right, and looked at how you were put together and listened to how you spoke, Nobody in that elevator will be concerned about you taking their purse, right? That's true. But they don't. Or when you get close to someone's car and you're walking across the street and they, you know, and they lock the door. Every black man in America can tell you a story about what's happened to them. But we cite examples that black police officers tell you what happens when they get stopped. Because when you're off duty and out of that uniform yeah. and you have a hoodie on and a baseball cap, then you know anything could happen. I'm, I'm looking at you like... What? You know, a police officer, yeah, you're out of uniform there, but you're right. Another another police officer or an Anglo police officer is just going to see you as another black man on the street. Well, again, look at what happened to Omar Edwards. Uh, Omar Edwards was a New York City policeman. All he wanted to do his entire life was be a police officer. He became a police officer. He went through the academy. Yeah. And when Omar Edwards finished his shift one evening, he went out to his car several blocks away from the precinct. He found someone breaking into his vehicle and gave chase. And when Omar Edwards caught the individual that was breaking into his car, Omar Edwards was shot and killed by two New York City police officers. Wow. Just amazing. I know the public always, uh, we tend to, to want equalization across America. Whatever happens in California, if it's tried and it's tried the same way in Missouri, the same way in D.C., and different jurisdictions do different stuff. There's no doubt about that, especially in the South versus the West versus the North. It's all different there. Do you think we'll ever have a, I can't say a unification, but at least everybody close to being on the same page about what really matters, about use of force, about interpretation, about what you see and what you don't see, and uh, people who should be hired or not hired. Well, to your point, the one thing we talk about is hiring, recruitment, and retention of police officers. It's a very important issue. And there's no standardization across the United States of who will be hired and how and when and at what time. Some police departments you can get hired on at 20 some police departments, you have to be 25. Some police departments, you need a college degree. Some you get hired with a high school education. Some you have to have five years of work experience in any venue, and some you don't. So in some of these organizations, people are being hired at an age where they're not really mature enough to make responsible decisions about the liberties of others. Is that what we're seeing? Some of the, uh, some of the officer-involved shootings tend to be with younger officers and not the more seasoned veterans? Well, all of them aren't. Some of them are, but the Tamir Rice shooting was a prime example. That officer had worked for, I believe it was two departments in the past, and his last experience before he went to Cleveland, he was recommended uh, not to be hired, and 
Uh, he had several disciplines in his file that involved use of force, and Cleveland still hired him, right? So, and, and Cleveland has acknowledged that there was a poor job done on his background. So it doesn't have to be age. It can be experience. And there are many departments around the country that will hire officers even though their their past is not as stellar as it could be. Because they just need people? They need people, and the standards are very different. And the backgrounds are very And let me give you an example. Some departments do polygraph examinations. Most of us that have led troops in law enforcement are, are advocates for doing a polygraph. Yeah. Some departments don't. Some departments do national background investigations. You know, So in other words, if you're going to get hired on in this town – we're going to go back 10 years, no matter where you lived, no matter where you went to school, and do a full-scope background investigation, similarly to what they do in the government. Some departments yeah. don't, right? Some departments, you can't come on if a family member is working for the department, right? You know, in, in business, that's a very standard practice. Some departments don't have that role. So you have three generations of people working on the same department. And what happens is those attitudes, those nuances that people bring to the table when they're 50 and 60 and 70 – they get passed down to people through the years, and people start to adopt those same uh, methodologies and those same feelings about people. Listen, there, there is no doubt, and to your point of your question earlier, there's no doubt that in the United States, race and class and color and gender still play a role in people's perceptions. And, oh, yeah. And until we get to the point where we can, we can, we can sort of block those elements out the way we treat people and the way we speak to people, then we're going to continue to have these these incidents that we see all the time, time and time again. I know you said that among the citizens, we have a romanticism about police, that they can do no wrong coming from mo- movies and television and that kind of thing. And, and about 30 percent or something of the uh, of the dramas that are on television are about police and what police do. And because we always want to have the Shakespearean happy ending, right. you know, there's no wrong there. The bad guy's caught, the police goes home, everything is fine. But with that, a lot of what we see on television is less than perfect. Yeah. But that still doesn't change people's perceptions, right? And what we learned, well, like I'll give you a instance. We wrote the book. We learned. We talked to people all over the country. And we talked to people, and people still said, largely white Americans still said, if they go by a police officer on the side of the road and they see someone out of the vehicle, they still wonder what the person did wrong to get stopped. Right. They don't, they don't, it never comes in their mind that maybe this was a call for assist. Maybe the car is broken down. Mm-hmm. Maybe the person in the car called police. Yeah. You know, they, they automatically they think the person did something wrong. On this edition, the subject is what can be done to curtail the shootings of unarmed African-American men by police and law enforcement officers and build better relations between police departments and African-American communities. Our guest is retired police officer and former ATF agent Matthew Horace, author of the book, The Black and the Blue, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism, and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement. We will continue our conversation with him on our next edition. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay in your game. And we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine, a look at the issues and people shaping Colorado, presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.